Uh, we're in, if you don't know, we're studying through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're in chapter 17. Chapter 17 is a very fascinating chapter. It begins with the transfiguration of Jesus, where the veil between heaven and earth grows really thin, and the divinity of Jesus busts through that veil, and he's seen in his glory. Then the disciples have this theological discussion about eschatology as they walk down the mountain. They meet up with the nine disciples that were left behind who fail epically. It is the worst failure by the disciples to this point in Matthew. Now, they're going to up the bar a little bit later, but right now, this is their worst failure. Then Jesus, God the Son, says, I'm going to die, but before I die, I'm going to pay my taxes. You got to love God's word. I mean, where else would you find that? That's all in one chapter. Like, it's unbelievable, okay? So let's jump in. There's a lot of work to do. Verse, verse 28, we're backing up one verse to chapter 16 because it flows with chapter 17. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days, those kind of terms in the Bible, after six days, it's saying we're, we're linking you back to what just happened. Jesus saying, you're going to see the kingdom, the son of man uh, in his kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So Jesus his 12 disciples, he grabs just three of them. Important to keep that in your mind. And heads with these three up the mountain after just saying, hey, some here, we're going to see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Fantastic. Luke tells us that Jesus called his three and he said, Come up with me to pray. And it was while Jesus was praying that he was transfigured. I think it's fascinating when you read the Gospels, the disciples don't ask Jesus how to do miracles. They don't ask Jesus how to preach, but they do ask Jesus how to pray. I think because they realize that's where the power comes from. 
It is while Jesus is praying that he is transfigured, okay? The disciples forget that we saw on Sunday because they end up not praying when they should be praying, all right? Chapter 16 tells us that this event took place way up in the north in Caesarea Philippi on a, it says, great mountain or a high mountain. The high mountain there is Mount Hermon. It's the highest mountain in Israel. It has snow on it. You can actually ski in the wintertime. Most likely, that's where this took place. So Jesus takes his disciples for a hike to pray. I'll tell you something I've found. The best praying that I do is when I'm out walking. If I sit somewhere early in the morning and I try to pray, I end up sleeping. But if I'll get out and walk, um, neuroscience is finding this, that there is a tremendous amount of horsepower your brain has to use just to keep you walking. Did you know that? We're an inverted pendulum. That's what we are. Most of our weight is at the top, and then we get less weight as we go down. To balance an uninverted pendulum is hard, let alone to make an inverted pendulum move. Your brain just gives massive horsepower to it. It's why uh, degenerative diseases of the brain, one of the first things that goes is your balance. Because the horsepower just required to keep you upright is crazy. Um, That's why children, toddlers, when they start to walk, um, they look like a drunk orangutan. Because it's their brain just trying to figure out, like, oh, okay. It's all that just, how in the world do I keep this thing up and moving forward? I found just that activity engages me in a way that I pray much better. So they get up on top and they see Moses and Elijah. How did they know it was Moses and Elijah? I think in the kingdom, we will never forget names. Like we'll just know. Yeah, someone says awesome, 100%. I will love that when that happens because it happens so often that I, I should know this person and I've forgotten their name. So then I'm like, hey, what's up, dude, bro, buddy. It's much harder for gals. What's up, bra? No, that doesn't work. Gal, chick, yeah. Sister, what's up, sister? In eternity, we're just gonna have names right there. And so Peter sees this, and Peter is stoked, and he just says, it's so good that I'm here, Jesus. <laughs> He's like, bro, you should not speak. Certain people shouldn't talk. Peter's one of them. So good that I'm here, right? So good. Like, Jesus, you know these two guys? You know Moses and Elijah? Bro, Jesus, you just went up a step. I know you're God, but you know Moses and Elijah. Like, it's really kind of funny. Has, have that, has that ever happened to you? Like you know somebody and then you realize they know other people that are important. You're like, hey, you just went up a step. Wow. It happened to me in Israel. Uh, we had this uh, discussion going on, myself, and these two other people on theodicy. Theodicy is how do you balance God's goodness with the evil we see in this world? It's a big question. To me, it's a really important question. How do you balance a good, generous God with sometimes the evil that we see all around us? How do you balance that? So I'm talking, it was two hours long. And the the whole place is cleared out. It's like us and this other table, and there's a Greek Orthodox priest. You can tell he's Greek Orthodox because he's got all the garb on, and a young man with him. And so we keep talking, and I was talking about an author I really like. His name is David Bentley Hart. He's Eastern Orthodox writes really good stuff on theodicy. So we're talking about that. I'm like not paying attention to anything. Um, I have a very loud voice. 
it carries. And so this guy comes over and he goes, hey, I heard you guys talking. And I just love it. It turns out his name is Father Josiah. He has 10 children, lives in LA. The, the young man that was with him is his fifth child who he took to a Eastern Orthodox conference in Europe and then hit the Holy Land on his way home. So he's like, I heard you mention David Bentley Hart. I said, oh, I love him. Let me give you his cell phone. I'm like, sorry, I don't have a phone. <laughs> like right there, I was just like, dude, you are someone important now. You just went up a step. It's like that almost with Peter. And so he kind of blurts out the first thing that comes. It's like, Moses is here. Maybe I can get him to autograph my Torah. He's the author. Like, that would be awesome. Can you sign my Torah? And sometimes I think we read this about Peter and we're like, you're a moron. I don't do that. Here's what I think about Peter. Here's what I think about this text. Peter is using all the Bible he had, right? When he's saying, hey, let's build some tents, he knew something. He knew in his mind, I've read the book of Exodus. And, and, And in order for God to actually hang out, what needed to be built? A tabernacle, a tent, a place of meeting, right? So, so something really super cool just happened here, right? God, Jesus, just manifested himself. He's with these two old guys from, from heroes from my past. Man, I want this thing to keep going on. I want to have fellowship here. I want you guys to hang out. And I know we need some kind of a tent of meeting. So to me, Peter's trying to figure this thing out. How many of you take this thing and say, I'm trying to just figure this thing out? I'm going to use all the theology I've got. Sometimes it's not the best theology, but it's all the theology I've got, and I'm going to apply it to this situation. To me, that's exactly what Peter is doing. He's taking all the theology he has, and he's saying, I'm going to apply it here. Here's what I know. I'm completing four years up at Western Seminary. In four years of seminary, you know what I've learned? I don't know very much. That's what I've learned. Like, I'm still trying to figure this thing out. Like, Wow. The, the more I learned, the more I realized I didn't even have a category for that thing. And there's all this information inside that category. So I just found out a whole bunch more stuff that I don't know. The great thing is this. God interrupts Peter and corrects him. We have to be a people that allow God to interrupt us and correct us. I think times we put our stakes in so deep on things that God's never able to correct us or change us. Instead, we're supposed to say, be saying, I want to be ever conformed to the image of Jesus, that I haven't arrived until I'm in your presence. Until that point, keep refining me and keep changing me. Interrupt me when I have bad theology, please, please. And for me, my biggest shift in four years has been on theodicy, balancing the goodness of God with the wickedness of this world. How do you balance those two? And if you wonder where I stand, I call it judo theology. If you don't know what judo theology, stay here a month and you'll find out because I talk about it that often. I think it's that important to understand how these two things relate. All right, so that happens. Peter does this thing. And in verse five, God corrects and says, uh-uh, not Moses and Elijah. Listen to him. If you were here, I'm going to say it's two weeks ago, uh, we took a separate day and did something different uh, because of Church in the Park, and I said, the question was, what does God want? Like, we all kind of wonder that. Does God want rule keepers? What does God want? And so that night, what we tried to do is, I said, 
If you look at the Torah, Torah is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. If you look at that, I think you see a very clear pattern. You have Abraham, who God says this about Abraham after he died. It's Genesis 26. He kept my Torah and my commandments. What Torah and commandments did Abraham have? Well, he didn't have them. Something. He did something that God said, that's exactly what I'm looking for. What was it? He believed God was good, and he believed God was generous. Abraham, I'm going to give you kids, a bunch of kids. Yes! He just believed him. Believed against the impossible, right? And then when God invites him up on this mountain, come up on this mountain, do this thing. Didn't make sense. What did Abraham do? He obeyed. He showed his trust in God's goodness and his generosity in his obedience, right? That's what you see. Um, I believe God does the same thing then with the children of Israel. Brings them out of Egypt, does all this kind of signs. And then in Exodus 19, real key chapter, he says, haven't I been good to you? Didn't I rescue you out of Egypt? I bore you on eagle's wings. So let's covenant together. Now what covenant existed at that point? Only the Abrahamic covenant. Let's make this covenant. So God then invites him, come up on this mountain when I tell you. When the trumpet blows, come up on the mountain. Well, the trumpet blows, what happens? They don't go up. So then you get the Torah. You get from chapter 20 is the law. And then they sin and more law and sin and more law. And you just get this cycle. It's Galatians chapter 3, 1 through 20. So um, what I said is this. Here's what I believe. I believe the law, the Mosaic covenant, was actually a parenthesis. What God has always wanted was the Abrahamic covenant. People of faith who know me to be a good and generous God. And because of that, they obey out of my goodness and generosity. And that brings us to the new covenant. So I don't want to repeat all that, but the, the whole thing was come up on this mountain and meet with me. Come up on the mountain and meet with God. What happens in chapter 17? Jesus takes three guys, they go up on the mountain and they meet with God. I think it's just a, a it's, it's biblical theology. You, you always see God doing the same thing, really. I want people of faith that know I'm a good, generous God that are going to believe in me. And so up on the mountain, God, if you would, bursts out of humanity in Jesus, and he glows like a million, billion watt light bulb. And I'm convinced of this personally. That if you go back to Genesis, in Genesis 1 and 2, the reason why Adam and Eve did not wear clothing is because they glowed like light bulbs. So they had this glow to them. In fact, I think we still see it. I get to do weddings. And on a wedding day, we say the bride, she looks radiant, right? That it's true, actually. Because when a uh, a person is excited or there's great things happen, your face actually fills up with more blood. The blood put, puts off infrared light, red light, and you look like you glow. So I think still in us, there's an Imago day. We glow, but it's super low wattage. But one day we'll be back like Jesus, glowing brilliantly. So you get this kind of, hey, come up, meet with me, know who I am, have a relationship with me, which is the whole reason why Jesus came. So you see almost a glimpse, I believe, of the same thing God had invited Abraham into and the people of Israel into, same thing right here. And then it ends like this. And when they lifted up their eyes, verse 8, they saw no one but Jesus only. I love that last phrase. No one but Jesus only. I'm not a tattoo guy. Don't have any tattoos. 
But if I was going to get a tattoo, I would get that statement right there in Greek. No one but Jesus only. So that when people ask me, dude, cool tattoo, what does it say? No one but Jesus only. And that would end the conversation. I got to go, man. Woo, look at the time. (laughs) There's a statement being made right there. It's not Moses, and it's not Elijah, it's Jesus. Why? Moses went up on a mountain, didn't he? What did he get on the mountain? The law. And he came back down, how many people died? 3,000. Elijah went up on a mountain, didn't he? God showed up. Fire, burned the, the water, burned the stones, burned the dirt, burned the offering. He came down, how many people died? 450. Jesus goes up a mountain. He is transfigured. He comes down and what does he do? Something radically different. What he does, we looked at it on Sunday. He comes down. He meets a dad whose son is demon-possessed. And what does he do? He kicks the demon out. A statement's being made right there. Jesus transfigured kingdom of light is coming down the mountain to what? Crush the kingdom of darkness. That's what's being said right here. The ultimate big purpose of Jesus Christ is I've come to crush the serpent's head. The seed of the woman, the very first promise, the proto-evangelium is you're going to have a seed, the promised seed, and he is going to crush the serpent's head. And yes, the serpent will bruise his heel. That's what's happening right here. And we'll look at that in a second. This is all in the context, remember, of chapter 16, just six days prior, where Jesus has said, I've come to establish a church at the gates of hell, and we're going to win. Whatever you bind will be bound. Whatever you loose will be loosed. We're going to win. And now he demonstrates right here the win. I'm going to crush the kingdom of darkness. Okay? Awesome. But before we get to that, there's this little kind of sideline, verse 9. It's the theology the disciples have on eschatology. And as they were coming down from the mountain... Jesus commanded them saying, tell no one the vision until the son of man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that Elijah first must come? And he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Everyone has a system by which they interpret the Bible. If you are a dispensationalist futurist, then you're going to say, right here, John the Baptist... uh, came, was not accepted, so he wasn't Elijah, and said Elijah's going to come as one of the Revelation 11, two witnesses. So this was a kind of, no, almost worked, but didn't. Skip to uh, Revelation 11 at the end of time. Um, If you are a preterist, you're going to say, John the Baptist fulfilled everything and is done. If you're a historist, you're going to say, John the Baptist comes in my generation, he's that dude right there. That's historist. It's always happening in their time. Okay, let me give you another way to think about possibly how this works. So here's what you have. Jesus is walking along with his disciples. They ask him a question about eschatology. Like, wait a second. Before Messiah comes, before these things happen, Malachi 4, 4 and 5 say, Elijah's supposed to show up. 
So, so where's Elijah? The simple answer is, verse 13, John the Baptist came in the power and spirit of Elijah. It's what was prophesied in Luke by Gabriel uh, to Elizabeth. That's, that's what he's going to be, all right? There's a simple answer. What gets complicated is how Jesus puts it. All right, verse 11, he does come and he will, future tense, restore all things, but he already has come. What in the world is being said there? He will come, has come, did come, and he's dead. What is he saying here? All right, here's the way I look at prophecy. The term is called inaugurated eschatology. And what it means is this. Events get inaugurated very often in the Bible, but they are not completed until a future time. That's inaugurated eschatology. The code for it, or the, the word you'll hear over and over is this, already, but not yet. There's an already aspect to prophecy, but there's almost always a not yet aspect to it, a future part to it as well. So I'll give you some examples. Jesus is king right now, right? Is he ruling? No, right? First Corinthians 15. There's an increase of his kingdom until he puts all of his enemies under his feet, and then the kingdom is given to the Father. So yes, he's the king, but he is not yet ruling as king. Already king, but not yet aspect to it. You see it in the life of David. David was anointed king when he was 16 years of age, but he did not start, start ruling. You can either look at 30 or 33 Hebron versus Jerusalem, but he didn't rule for at least 14 to 17 years later. So it was inaugurated, dude, you're king, but he was running for his life, almost getting killed. Not what most kings do. So it's, there's an inaugurated eschatology. So what I see very often in the Bible is the same thing. Elijah prophesied to king, come. He did come in John the Baptist. The spirit and power of Elijah was on John the Baptist, very similar to him. It's not reincarnation. It's he's coming like Elijah. Uh, he launches the kingdom. And because he launches it and is involved in that, Jesus gives him credit for completing it. Bro, you were part of this thing and you're going to restore all things. What you launch, what you help start, the already part and the not yet part, you're getting credit for it. So that's the way I see this text. Uh, so uh, Elijah came, the, the, the spirit, if you would, or John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah, started the kingdom, was key in it, and now he gets credit for the kingdom. It's just awesome because Jesus is going to reward you and me for things that we could not believe. Like, what? I wasn't even involved in that. Yeah, but you were part of it, man. You're part of the chain, just like John the Baptist. So there's the very quick answer. We get stuck on that one for a long time. We come in now to Jesus returning, and here's what happens. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to bear with you? How, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? 
Jesus said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will be moved and nothing will be impossible for you. The powerless disciples. We looked at this on Sunday. I'm not going to go over it. I'll add a couple of things that I couldn't get to on Sunday. The first is this. It's a divided group. Jesus has said all these great things in chapter 16. Kingdom, camping at hell's gate. We're going to defeat hell. We're going to take this kingdom. I'm going to reclaim what is rightfully mine. You're going to bind. It's going to be bound. You're going to loosen. It's going to be loose. Glorious power. Keys of the kingdom. And then he takes three of his guys and they take off. And the other nine are left below. How do you think those nine feel? How do you think they feel right now? Do they feel like the A team or the Z team? Right? If the boss at work is saying, we've got some major changes right now. We're starting a brand new ministry. We're going to do great things. And then he has a meeting without you. What are you thinking in that moment? Oh, I'm out. Now I'm getting fired. This isn't going well. This is not what I wanted. The crickets are starting. (laughs) Right? It's going to crush you a little bit. You're going to be worried. And so I think when they're down here with this dad, with a demon-possessed boy, they're kind of a little bit on edge right now, and they're out to prove themselves. Like, we're not B team. We're not C team. We're A team. Watch this. Watch what I do. That is a great danger in life. Do you know that? When you're out to prove yourself, you're going to only prove one thing. And I'll explain how. So a couple of years ago, it was about 1997, I was flying home on an airplane back into Grants Pass. It was this goofy little airplane uh, from San Francisco into Medford, and it had seats on one side, and the seats on the other side ended at a bathroom. I was sitting right next to the door of the bathroom. Thankfully, what an awesome spot to sit. So I'm sitting there, and this little boy comes down the aisle from the very front, and he goes in the bathroom, and I just keep reading, doing my thing. And then about two minutes later, I hear this kind of struggling and this crying. And so I lean over the door. You know how loud it is in airplanes, especially the turboprops. I'm like, hey, buddy, are you okay? He's like, the door is stuck. I can't open the door. And so I kind of reach over, and I push on the door, and it's, I said, have you unlocked it? It's unlocked. So I push again. And I, and, and I get up, and I kind of put my shoulder against the door, and I kind of give it a little nudge. Man, it's stuck. It will not open. And so I told the kid, hey, step back a little bit. And I took one step back, and I put my shoulder into that thing. Like, you could hear rivets creaking. <laughs> and at that point, like, the people in the seats in front of me kind of turned around and looked at me, and I said this to them. I still don't know why I said it. I said, it's okay. I'm an engineer. <laughs> yeah. I designed these things, right? I'm good. <laughs> right? So, so the next time I hit that thing hard, it, uh, uh, things are breaking. And then th- the last time I said, buddy, get out of the way. And I had myself up against the curved part of the airplane, my foot up there, I was going through that door. And this stewardess, or I should say flight attendant, excuse me, this flight attendant comes running down the aisle and she's like, hold on. I said, it's okay. The kid's stuck in the bathroom. I'm going through the door. I'm going to let him out. She goes, no, stop. So I stopped. She pulled the door open. And I sat down. 
When you're out to prove yourself, <laughs> bad things happen. I think these guys had a little bit of that. They were feeling, if you would, the talent gap. Like, oh no, this ministry has gone beyond us. Oh no, we're being left behind. We're going to do something crazy and we're going to make up for it. And all they did was fail, 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 fail. And I said, Sunday, because there's this dance we're supposed to be in. It's the daring dependence where we dare and do great things for God, but we have this always understanding, I am totally dependent on him. I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. One with God will defeat a thousand. Two with God will defeat 10,000. Oh, by myself, look out. You, you, you abide by yourself, you bear no fruit. So th- they forgot that because Luke tells us, Jesus says, this one doesn't come out by prayer. They tried their thing and their power and didn't happen. I love the way Peter puts it. He said, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves. That's your job, my job. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he might lift you up in due season. That's daring dependence. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's the dance of faith. And I got to be careful, right? Because I can think, you know, teaching, I've been doing this for a while, 10 years now. Mm, I kind of got this thing. But this happens to me. I'll, I'll prepare what I think is like one of my best messages ever, and no one likes it. And I think to myself, like, what's wrong with you people? <laughs> and then I'll hear somebody else preach something that I'm like, that was terrible. And there's just massive response. I'm like, what in the world? That's ridiculous. Guess what happened? God moved a mountain. Never ever forget. It's God that moves the mountain. And he'll use whoever is humble enough to have that daring dependence. William Carey, that great missionary, he put it this way, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. There's the dance of dependence. There's something beautiful that God says, all right. And I said on Sunday that this is probably, I can't find one worse, the worst rebuke of the disciples by Jesus. He says, verse 17, oh, faithless and twisted generation. That's a brutal rebuke. Kind, compassionate Jesus here, you are a faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? The worst rebuke, if you find one that's better, tell me, This is the worst one I see in scripture. I'm sick and tired of you guys. That's essentially what Jesus says. You're a twisted and perverse generation. Some put adulterous generation. Horrible rebuke. Why? Why is Jesus so upset here? Because the core of his mission is being threatened. What's the core of his mission? Genesis 3.15, crushing the serpent's head right? There is an evil usurper who is now on the throne of earth and I'm going to crush his head. Don't you guys realize that I've given you the authority over that kingdom and right now you're not snatching that authority. And if you don't understand how important that is, oh, you've missed it. I've been with you for three years. You haven't got this yet. We're crushing this kingdom. I just came down from the mountain to crush the kingdom and I'm facing this. That's why. When the core of mission is threatened, you have to get really, 
really serious. And that's exactly what Jesus does to his disciples. Snap into it. Snap into it. All right? So then this chapter ends with death and taxes. Brilliant. Verse 22. And as they were gathering in Galilee, here's what's going to happen. This is the final walk of Jesus. He leaves Caesarea Philippi, comes down to Galilee, and he's going to march right down to Jerusalem where he will be crucified. This is his last walk. So they're gathering together in Galilee. This is his home area. And Jesus said to them, the son of man, we saw Daniel 7, the, that term that's used, that Jesus uses, is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. I'm going to die. Have you ever had somebody tell you they're going to die? I'm terminal. Got six weeks, one month, two weeks, one week. At this point, it's been too many times for me to want to count. How do you respond in that moment? These guys, cry is a great thing. These guys, they were greatly distressed. But what did they miss? Resurrection, right? I'm going to die, but I'm going to be raised on the third day. What were they missing? There's resurrection. I'm going to be the wounded victor. We've talked about that. I'm the wounded victor. It's throughout the Bible. I'm the wounded victor. But here's the good news. I'm the victor. I'm going to concentrate on the woundedness or my victory. So I have a really good friend, family friend. I've known him since 1975. I was three years old. He picked me and my family up from uh, Carlotta Ranch in California and brought us up to the A Street House of Jesus Christ on guess what street? May imagine that. Known him a long time. Back in 2009, two of his sons were in an automobile accident and they died. Brutal. I happened to be in India when it happened and my heart was just breaking. Got back, had this conversation with his dad. And he told me something I will never, ever forget. So he went down. He had a good friend who lived down south, did not have this news yet. So he got in his car a couple weeks afterwards and drove down there to tell this friend firsthand what had happened. So he's telling the guy what happened. My two sons were in an automobile accident and they died. And this man responded like this. He stood up and he said, praise God. That is so awesome. Man, that's the best news I've heard. They beat us here. They beat us, man. I cannot wait to join with them. This guy was so taken back. He didn't know whether to punch the guy or hug him. He hugged him. He said, there was the first man I've ever met that truly believed in heaven. The first guy I've ever met that truly believed in heaven. Praise God, they beat us there. Praise God, resurrection, right? We cry and we should because there's a hole. But guess what? We have hope. At every memorial service, I always say this. I said it yesterday at a service. I say this. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we did not say goodbye to this saint. We simply said, see you later. 
because there's resurrection. Never forget, there's resurrection. Praise the Lord, there's resurrection. This is chapter one of a really long book, chapter one. So then there's this, it's only found in this text. It's a interesting little story. Here it goes, verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, Capernaum, if you know Israel, is like on the crossroads of I-84 and I-5. So it's like there's all this traffic there. So what that meant was the tax collector would set up his booth right on this crossroads and just be looking for people that haven't paid their taxes. So that's kind of the, they would know this when they read this, we have to learn it. So they come to Capernaum and the collectors of the two drachma, this is the temple tax, went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? (laughs) My translation is funny. He said, yes. Okay, if you know that, then he's saying, no, he doesn't pay taxes. Does your teacher not pay the tax? Yes, he does not pay the tax. Anyways, it's just a funny translation. He actually does pay the tax. We'll see. And, And Spoiler alert. But when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them. Go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. There is a fish called St. Peter's fish because it sucks all its babies up in its mouth and protects them. Probably that fish. All right? Here's an enigma, though. Jesus is heading down Jerusalem. Um, He's going to be killed. This is his last walk. On his way down there, the tax man kind of stops their crew. Um, They want to collect the temple tax, right? The temple was what? The temple was the space where God would meet with man, right? The sacrifices, what it did is it create this little clean spot where a, a man or a woman could meet with God. So the temple was this meeting place where, where if you would, the overlap of heaven and earth occurred and there you could meet with God. That's what the temple was. So the temple was supposed to be the place where God met with man, but Jesus is going down to the temple. Instead, it's going to be the place where God is killed and they want him to pay for it. What an enigma, right? So Jesus grabs Peter and says, hey, buddy, come here. And he talks about kings and their kids. Now, we live in America. We don't got no king here, right? We don't believe in the king. We don't like kings. In fact, our rulers, we want to have their their bank statements and their tax statements. We want to make sure they're paying. Are you paying your fair way? If you're not fair way, if you're not, we're not going to vote for you, right? We're very different from this culture. But 2,000 years ago, kids of the king, they didn't pay taxes. No way. They got off scot-free. So who's the, who's the king of the temple? Jesus, right? Who's, who's the king of Israel? Jesus. He is the Davidic line. He is the king of Israel. Who's the king of earth? Jesus, son of God. Does he have to pay taxes? No, right? Jesus is so confident in who he is. I'm king. In his place, all those things, he just knows, nope. I don't have to pay. But does he pay? Yes. Why does he pay? There's an awesome reason. 
but let me kind of back this up for a second. Do you um, know kids that are too secure in their identity and too secure like in their place in the world and too secure in their parents' love for them? What do we call them? Brats, right? (laughs) That's what we call them. Because they're just, you know, they're kind of like, yeah, are you kidding me? They have a swagger to them. So my son Elijah, not a brat at all, great kid. But uh, like when he was four, he kind of figured out what I do. And he asked me this one time, he said, dad, are you the boss of Edgewater? Yeah, it's always such a fascinating question. I'm like, oh, okay. So I, I answer this way, why? Why, bud? He goes, because if you are, let's go to the office, take out all the chairs and play indoor soccer. What's he saying in that moment? Let's take advantage of this situation. Come on, let's, let's leverage your position for what we want, which is the norm. That's human nature. I'm going to leverage my position to get what I want. Does Jesus do that? Uh-uh. Why not? Because the kings in his kingdom are a different kind of king completely. I'll read something for you. You don't have to turn there. It's Deuteronomy 17. And it lays out for Israel, you're going to go to the land, you're going to want a king, and here's what this king needs to be doing. Deuteronomy 17, 14. When you come to the land that Yahweh your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom Yahweh your God will choose. One from among your brothers, you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since Yahweh has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver, and gold. What did God just say about the king? You can live like a normal person. That's what he's saying. Verse 18. And when he sits on the throne of the kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear Yahweh, his God, by keeping all the words of this law and those statutes and doing them. Second thing, he needs to not be an idolater. He needs to have justice for his people, and he needs to not be an idolater. And then lastly, verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandments. What did it say about the kings? They're just like you. Make sure he does these things. He keeps God's word in front of him. He doesn't have a bunch of wives, doesn't have a bunch of possessions, doesn't live like anybody else, lest his heart be lifted up above his brothers. He's supposed to be right with his brothers. That was God's original mandate. Jesus, king of everywhere, says, I don't have to pay this, but I'm going to pay this. And here's the key phrase. He says, to not give offense to them. It's well within my right as king to say, I'm not paying that, but I don't want to give any reason that might offend this other person. I believe this about us, everyone in here that believes in Jesus Christ. We are being trained right now to be a royal priesthood. 
What does royal mean? King. That we're going to rule and reign with Jesus for eternity. That right now is the proving ground, if you would, the training ground for us to be kings and queens. But we're to be a whole different kind of king and queen. Not the kings that take advantage of their positions. Not the kings that take from people. We're to be servant kings like Jesus that give. And our highest motive is this. I never want to do anything in my life that may give offense to the name of Jesus Christ. I will put aside things that might be my right because other people may think that it's wrong. Paul put it like this. He said, if eating meat causes someone to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. Why? Because he was sold out for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want people to be saved. I want people to enter into this glorious kingdom and I'll give up my rights. I'll become a servant king so that I make sure the name of my king always looks glorious. There's the mark of a very mature believer giving up their rights because they have a much bigger vision of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and making sure no one takes offense. So Father, what a glorious chapter. From transfiguration to taxes. I pray that we would be a group of people that daily analyze the way that we are walking out our faith. Not giving occasion for the enemies of Yahweh to blaspheme your name. May we be careful to not give room for offense. Help us in that, Lord. Shape us and mold us and forgive us where, Lord, we have allowed our own agendas to leverage us into situations that are really offensive to people. So help us, Father. I pray that we would be a people that live in this daring dependence that we're supposed to live in, knowing you're the king, knowing that you have defeated the powers of this earth, knowing that we're in mop-up duty right now, knowing that, praying, seeking you, leaning on you, not leaning on our own understanding, really, really basing our lives on the power of the gospel, that it is the power of God in our salvation, and that we would dare great things for you because of our confidence, because we know our identity in you, because we know our security in you, because we know that even death and sin have been crushed by you, and that when death comes, we win. Just like that man said, praise God, they won. Oh, may we have those kind of attitudes, Lord. So shape us. I pray as we partake in the elements, as we take of your body and your blood, I pray that our hearts would be further shaped like you, that we would know when we're to be graceful and we would know when we're to be truthful like you were with your disciples. When core mission is on the line, help us to know that, Lord. Give us wisdom, we pray. May you fill us and empower us as we partake in these elements. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. The brothers can hand out the elements. We'll take it together.